There are some contests in life where you just can't win. If you were to if you were to participate in them, you would lose and you would never have any shot at winning at all. You might take for instance the guessing game that we've been playing with my 2-year-old daughter Thea. It is a great experience. It's one of the greatest experiences of my life. And there are many of them, but playing the guessing, this guessing game with her is great. Um, she's kind of learned from Lauren and Zachary about this guessing game. And then she'll join in and she'll say, I'm thinking of an animal. And if she directs it towards me, she'll say, I'm thinking of an animal, Daddy. And, so, and then I'm excited to begin the game. And so I'll ask, is it big? She'll say, no. Is it small? No. Is it medium? No. Is it in between large and medium? No. Is it in between small and medium? No. Does it exist? No. Did you make it up? No. <laughs> Is it a puppy? No. A monkey? No. A turtle? No. A puppy? And I shall say, it's a puppy. And I say, it's a puppy. No. <laughs> you just can't win. So if you play the guessing game with her, you will have a great time. But the way she plays it, as of right now at least, you can play as much as you want. You'll enjoy the experience. It is incredible. But you will not win. At least as of right now. But that could change any day. There are some things in life that you just can't win at. And I think today's text is a reminder that when it comes to waging war against God, you just can't win. Now, whereas the experience of playing that guessing game with Thea is fun, and in losing, you nonetheless gain by the joy of having that experience, to strive against God, however, is not only futile, but it's dangerous. You need to start going through biblical history. You could see whether it's Pharaoh, whether it's Og, king of Bashan, Sihon of the Amorites, Nahash of the Ammonites, Goliath of Gath. Example after example after example bears witness to the reality that to wage war against God is utterly futile. You can't win. I think, in my opinion at least, the best, or at least among the best illustrations of that, is seen in Jesus' return. When you go to John 19, you see what John sees through the text. You see that John sees the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse, that's Christ, and against his army. Now, if you didn't know better, you might erroneously think, okay, this is the moment. It's all been leading up to this. There's going to be this epic battle where it looks at times like either side might have the advantage, but then good snatches victory out of the jaws of defeat and good finally conquers evil. It's not like that at all. In verse 19 of Revelation 19, you have the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies ready to wage war. They are ready for this. Who knows all the strategic planning they did? Who knows all the diagnostics they ran? And here they are, they're ready to wage war. In verse 20, then says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. See, the enemies of Christ thought they were showing up for a battle. But really all it was was they were showing up for judgment. As depicted in this event to come. That's what it was. Just show, hey, here, I'm here to be judged. Under the guise, at least in their minds, of being ready to wage war. And look how powerful this one is. He comes with an army, but he doesn't need an army. He comes on the white horse and he takes care of it with the breath of his mouth, with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. He has an army, but he doesn't need an army. He is unstoppable. He is unstoppable. Some of you might be familiar on, um, say, a sports website, for instance, when there's a, a game going on in real time, they'll often have a little section that says win probability. Right, so yesterday, for instance, if you were to look at the win probability in the bottom of the sixth ending for the Yankees game, they were up like 7-2, to 8-2, to two, something like that. The win probability for the Yankees was 97 point something percent. So there's the probability, the likelihood of the Yankees winning. 
And you might say if the enemies of God were to look at the win probabilities, the, the little you know, segment of a website, so to speak, if they wanted to get their win probability in real time, the likelihood of defeating the God of the universe, it'd always be zero. It just would always be that. They might say something like this, wait a minute, do you know the level of government and corporate connections that we have made to exercise control of people's bodily autonomy and worldwide economies? Do you understand what steps we have taken to do that? Yeah, but the wind probability is still zero. It's always been zero. It's always going to be zero. The victory of God and the victory secured for God's people is 100% secure. That probability never changes either. God wins in all circumstances ultimately. And God's people win ultimately. And that statistic never changes 100%. And what we have before us is a kind of scale model that anticipates what is coming. You see, you can look at the military victories of David as kind of anticipating the forthcoming great military victory of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. They are, the victories of Christ, those military victories, they're like scale model representations of what's going to happen on a worldwide level when the Son of God returns. And I think that is a lens through which we are to see this portion of Psalm 18. And I do think the unstoppable nature of God's purposes, I think it should bring great comfort to God's people. That no matter what you see go on in the world, you're like, yep, win probability for the enemies of God, zero. Win probability for God, and ultimately for the people of God, 100%. And I also think it should bring godly fear to those that are against God. You might look at Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12, and God's message for the kings of the earth to kiss the sun, lest he be angry and they perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. With that said, let's make our way back into Psalm 18. I have been giving recaps of the entirety of where we've been up until this point. I'm going to refrain from that for the purposes of time this day, but I will, Lord willing, have another recap um, as we get into the text next um, Lord's Day. What I will say at this point is this. In verse 32, we started to see David rejoice in God's empowerment in God's empowerment. He spoke of how God so graciously girded him with strength, how God made his way blameless. And we saw that would have most immediately a military application, but ultimately that applied to the way in which he behaved, even as it related to his behavior with Saul. God's grace was to be glorified. He said, he makes my feet like hind's feet. He sets me on high places. So David had this agility and ability to make his way on the field of battle, to even overcome the high places of the enemy and secure them as a place of protection for himself and for his people. And we continue with that line of thinking, that line of rejoicing, rejoicing in God's provision as we make our way back into the text. We begin in Psalm 18, verse 34, where we read, He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. If you look back at verse 33, and then at verse 34, you can see a movement. A movement from the legs in verse 33 to the arms in verse 34, as David describes the military training that God has given him. In fact, the word for teaches, as it's rendered in our text, could be rendered as trains. David wasn't trained for military battle by man. David was trained by God. You could look at Psalm 144, verse 1, where essentially the same thing is said. Now, in one sense, David was trained according to God's gracious providence. Because serving as a shepherd, watching his father's sheep, even though he was um, maligned by one of his brothers to say, you only watch but a few sheep, those few sheep in the wilderness, and so on. Nonetheless, he learned how to wage battle there, at least to some degree. He talked about having delivered sheep that were taken into the mouth of the lion and the bear, that he struck the lion and the bear so as to protect the sheep. So according to God's gracious providence, he had learned some measure of how to battle by the grace of God then. One thing you'll notice, I want you to notice this. Even if you were to look at that historical narrative in 1 Samuel 17, when David is talking about what he did in the days when he was protecting his father's sheep in the sheepfold, he is so careful even then, even as we see in this psalm, to give glory to God. 
he makes those statements. If you were to look at 1 Samuel 17, he makes those statements about delivering the sheep from the mouth of the lion and the bear. You'll see that in verses like 34 through 36. But then in verse 37, he says, The Lord, or Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So early on in David's life, He was so quick to give God glory. It's as though he couldn't talk about what he did, so to speak, without making sure that people understood it was Yahweh who gave me the victory. Keep that in mind. That's 1 Samuel 17. That's early in David's life. We're looking at something towards the latter part of David's life, after his enemies have been conquered. And he's got that mindset that's going to show itself in this psalm. So quick to give God glory. He teaches my hands to make war. And then David goes on and he says that he was also trained according to God's empowerment. In the next line he says, So that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Now this likely speaks of David's ability and strength that God gave him to deftly handle a heavy-duty weapon like a bow of bronze. Like a bow of bronze. Bows were often made of wood, but there were occasions when bows would be made of bronze. And I think this is speaking of David being able to bend such a bow in the process of, say, stringing it, doubtless in the process of shooting it. He gives me such strength so that I could bend a bow of bronze. Now notice again, I just mentioned this, I want to unpack it a little bit further, what David is doing. He's repeatedly ascribing to God the glory for all of his ability. So if you want to see at least part of the reason why David was a man after God's own heart, you could look at a place like Acts 13, 22, and you see it's connected to his obedience, where God says that David was a man after his own heart. He would do what God had called him to do. So it was connected to obedience, but doubtless it was also connected to him desiring to give God the glory over and over again. He reminds me of the Apostle Paul. You might think of 1 Corinthians 15. When the Apostle Paul, in between the statement that the Apostle Paul made in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says that, I labored more than all of the other apostles, sandwiched in between that statement, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then after he said, but I labored more than all of the other apostles, then he said, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, and doubtless the grace of God that was in him. Spurgeon well noted, quote, It is impossible to be too frequent in the duty of ascribing all our victories to the God of our salvation. So look for opportunities in your life to give God the glory. Now, the flesh will want you to look for opportunities to take some glory. Come on, you've given enough glory to God. Don't you think you deserve a little bit of the glory? You've done your part. Tell your story. Tell them your method. Tell them what you've done. And you just want to be so careful to say, I want God to get the glory in everything. If you want to be known for something, at least in the sight of heaven, doubtless also in the sight of men, be known for being someone who gives God glory. Be like the moon, who essentially just reflects, to speak to personify it as it were, who reflects the light of the sun. Live to reflect his light and to give him the glory in all things. I do also want to note that um, during this old covenant period, uh, David was God's anointed. And let's remember that during this old covenant period, you know, when you read in the Old Testament and this, you know, you're reading much of which was under the time of the old covenant, God's anointed was empowered to do things like this, like to conquer Canaanites and subdue enemies. So the warfare of Old Testament saints was oftentimes literal. The warfare of New Testament saints is spiritual. So as you see the literal warfare of Old Testament saints, you could start seeing it through the lens of a New Testament Christian who says, well, my warfare is not literal. I'm not called to kill Canaanites. I'm not called to do that. I'm called to battle spiritually. And even as David was quick to ascribe all the glory to God, in a similar vein, we should be quick to ascribe glory to God. Meaning, so how would that apply to us? Well, if you wield the sword of the Spirit well, right? You don't give yourself credit and say, hey, God got me started on this journey, but I wield the sword really well. I'll tell you how I do it. 
No, no, you say, God has taught my hands toward. The reason I can wield a sword at least somewhat decently is because of the grace of God working in, in me. If you can lift the shield of faith well, and with it you could quench the fiery darts of the enemy, you want to be quick to give the glory to God. It's not because of your own strength. God has taught your hands to war. Whether that's wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, or whether that includes lifting the shield of faith, if you have assurance of your salvation, it's because God has given you the helmet of salvation. And the list can go on, but you want to be somebody who's so quick in all things, not to take glory, but to give glory to God. And there's a lot of ways that we could war against our tendencies to do what we ought not to do. We'll we'll get to that a little bit later on in this message. But for now, we see a change from second-person language um, to, uh, or at least from third-person language, he teaches my hands to war, to second-person language here in verse 35, and we'll see it in verse 36 as well. Verse 35 reads, You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. So David here is further acknowledging how God empowered him. But it's not only that God empowered him. Beginning of verse 35, God protected him. Middle of verse 35, God supported him. Last line of verse 35, God exalted him. So this verse, he's just basically saying, God protected me, God supported me, God God exalted me. God did it all. First, David wrote, you have also given me the shield of your salvation. So he's ascribing his deliverance to God's protection. He may also, this this protection that's connoted here, saying essentially that God's protection was like a shield of deliverance. And he may be um, basically communicating what the pulpit commentary notes to be rather common in ancient warfare, namely... That while one warrior was, quote, engaged in using his offensive weapons, especially the bow, they would go on and say that he was often protected from the missiles of the enemy by a comrade who held a shield before him. So maybe David is drawing from that kind of image. Engaged in battle. He teaches my fingers to war, my hands to battle. And as I'm engaged in that battle, God protected me with the shield of his salvation. To use kind of, you know, modern day language, you might say, God had David's back. God also had David's front. God also had David on the sides. God was like a surrounding shield to David. He was like a surrounding shield. That second line, your right hand has held me up. I think we noticed there a kind of personal touch. At least I perceive that. Right hand being the arm of strength. Your right hand has held me up. You might imagine all the pitfalls that awaited David, the snares and the traps into which he could have fallen. But the reason why he didn't fall into those proverbial pits and traps was because God's hand held him up. Think about that as you read through First and Second Samuel. And you think about all the snares from which he was kept. Could have fallen into them. But God held him up. Kept him out of them. That last line is an interesting one, isn't it? Last line of verse 35. Your gentleness has made me great. What does David mean by that? Well, as Alan Ross notes, gentleness here refers to, quote, God's, to God's, quote, kind and gracious dealings with him. I think that's a good understanding of what's meant here by that word. Interestingly, this Hebrew word is only used twice in the Old Testament. It's used here and it's used in Psalm 45, verse 4. But in the parallel version of this psalm, because remember, we see essentially a very like version of this psalm in 2 Samuel 22, we see a different word used there. It's a Hebrew word that essentially means humility. So what does it mean here when he speaks of God's gentleness? He's essentially speaking of God's merciful condescension. God's humbling himself, as it were. To stoop down, as it were, and to lift up and exalt a frail and fallen man like David. Your gentleness or your kind condescension has made me great. You've taken me from the sheepfold and you've given me a place of prominence among the kings of the earth. And in redemptive history, it was God's gentleness that made David great. 
Now, it might seem strange at first, but the New Testament saint can sing these words through New Testament lenses as well. God has given you the shield of His salvation. He protects you. He protects you. To use language from 2 Thessalonians, He guards you and He establishes you against the wicked one. He's given you the shield of faith with which you can quench the fiery darts of the enemy. That same Holy Spirit has empowered you to do what God has called you to do. His right hand has held you up. Your foot would have slipped so many times. You would be on your way. Just imagine this. You want a funny image? Imagine yourself. The end of it's not funny, but maybe just imagining the, the, the middle of this is somewhat funny. Imagine yourself just tumbling. Like you just tripped and you fell down a hill. You would be perpetually tumbling through this life on your way to perdition if God by His grace did not hold you up. He's grabbed your hand, as it were, more times than you can count. And He's pulled you away from more snares than you even know of. Even as I preached on in a message in 1 Samuel, He's the God who protects even when we don't know it. I wonder if He'll recount for us when we see Him in glory all of the occasions that He protected us from. I don't know. It's just amazing to think how He might be glorified in showing His gracious providence concerning things that we are completely oblivious to in the here and now. The God who protects us even when we do not know it. And His condescension has indeed made you great. Like, did, did Pastor George just call me great? <laughs> well, you bear a great title. If you were called the king of the world, it would not be as noble of a title as child of God. You bear a great title. Son or daughter of the living God is a great title. The beast and the kings of the earth. That sounds like a great title in Revelation 19, 19. The kings of the earth. Like that sounds like a pretty regal and you know, pretty important title. Well, it's not as important as being a child of God. And it's God's condescension, His merciful condescension that has made you great. That He's raised you up from death to life to be seated in heavenly places with Christ. His kindness, His condescension. In what way? Well, the Father so graciously sent His Son to die for sinners like you and me. The Son so graciously humbled Himself to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He became a curse so that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. His condescension has made you forgiven reconciled and has given you a great title. And it's the merciful grace of God by which the Holy Spirit of the living God takes up residence in a jar of clay like yourself and like me. What condescension! The God of the universe deserves the most glorious of surroundings, the most glorious throne as it were. And doubtless He has it. But yet at the same time, through His Spirit, He takes up residence in me. That is merciful condescension. Thanks be to God. So a New Testament saint can sing Old Testament language through New Testament lenses in a pretty precious way. Verse 36, You enlarged my path under me, so my feet did not slip. So earlier in this psalm, you might recall that David spoke about the cords of death entangling him. And his path was, if you will, metaphorically speaking, confined to narrow places where he had to essentially watch every step. That's what that would kind of mean metaphorically. I'm confined to narrow places. I have to watch every step lest I fall into the snares that they've prepared for me and fall into the enemy's hands. Well, this verse here is essentially saying that David's formerly narrow path, which represented danger on every side, and as a result, it necessitated very strict movements, lest his foot or ankle, as the word for feet here could be rendered, might be entangled and might slip. Well, he was brought to an enlarged and spacious path where he could run, as it were, with stability and without fear of falling. So the picture, if you look at verse 36, the picture is essentially one of liberty. A liberty that is experienced in the midst of battle as God effectively changed the playing field, as it were. You changed the playing field. I was in a tight space. All of a sudden, you enlarged the path before me, metaphorically speaking. I felt like I couldn't walk lest my feet would slip, but you enlarged the path so that I was able to move and move with agility and freedom on the battlefield, and my feet did not slip. God's changing of the playing field, as it were, worked towards David's good and deliverance. 
Now, I do just want to say here, and I think this is helpful to note, the language that we see here in Psalm 1836 is used in other places of the Scriptures outside of the military landscape. I'll give you a for instance. So if you're saying, well, how can I apply this kind of language to me? How might God enlarge my path under me so that my feet don't slip? Because David, again, contextually, most immediately, he's talking about the battlefield. Well, how might that apply to me? Well, I want to use a text from Proverbs chapter 4, and I think we'll get some instruction as to how to apply that. In Proverbs 4, David is recalling, or Solomon is recalling, instruction from his father, David. So it's kind of an interesting chapter in the sense that Solomon's recalling what his father had told him. And David had told Solomon to get wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5. Get wisdom. A little bit later on, Proverbs 4, 13. Keep instruction. So go and get it. And when you get it, make sure that you hold on to it. And if you were to do that, part of the outworking of that is this. And look at the connection between the language that I'm about to read to you and Psalm 1836. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. So as Christians, per the application of Psalm 1836, yes, we could look back at the gracious help that God has given us and what we've received. But through the language of Proverbs 4, I think that we are well reminded That God has given us provision that we are called to apply. Not just to rejoice in the help that He has given us or the way He's worked providentially, but our feet will not stumble if we apply the wisdom that He has given us in His Word. That's the idea of how this language is used in Proverbs 4.12. Get wisdom. Keep instruction. Hold on to it. Take the Word of God that you've been taught. Apply the Word of God. Don't lose it, so to speak. Make sure you're holding on to it. And if you do that, your feet will not stumble. There's all kinds of stumblings that can be expected and experienced on the path that's contrary to God's wisdom. It's like walking down. If you want a a, a visual of what it looks like to walk down the road of folly, opposite of the wisdom of God, picture, and this is an imperfect illustration, but nonetheless, it's helpful, I think. Imagine walking down a really narrow path. Be like, wait, it's the broad path that leads to destruction. Yes, I'm mixing metaphors here. This is different than the narrow path that leads to life. Picture walking down a tight and narrow path, to kind of use David's military language of being like tied into something in tight places, and picture thorns on either side, so protruding into the path that you can't even walk down the path without getting harmed or hurt. If you walk down the path that is opposed to God's wisdom, you are guaranteed pain. I don't know if this, I don't know if this stuff is still around. It probably is. But I remember um, when I was in student ministry, um, there was a student who, um, you know, I, that I met with. And we went to some wings place. And we went to this wings place. And um, I don't remember the exact details, but he tricked me into uh, having buffalo wings that might have been those wings that were called suicide wings. And, um, and I had them, and then as I took them, he started to, as I started to eat them, he started to smile. And I'm like, wait, wait, what's going on? And I felt pain. I had to go in the bathroom. I was like, I'll be right back. I'll go to, I've got my mouth under the faucet, not realizing that that doesn't really help. I think other people told me that something like milk would have helped better, but what do I know? I'm just experiencing pain in that moment. I don't know much about this. I ran for the bathroom. In my experience, I know this isn't the case for all people, but pretty much anyone who has suicide wings, and I know there are people out there who are exceptions, you're going to feel pain if you eat suicide wings. You can just be assured that you will experience pain. And granted, there may be exceptions to that, but there aren't exceptions to walking down the path of folly without experiencing pain. In some level, you will experience pain. But walking in the path of wisdom is liberating. And walking in the path of God's wisdom also does bring a minimization of problems. At least certain kinds of problems. You know, we could forget about this because we know that when you walk in obedience to Christ, that life is still nonetheless filled with tribulation. You're still going to encounter hardship as a disciple of Christ. And you may experience more of certain kinds of hardship, like persecution or ridicule and and, and things like that. But don't forget about all the hardship that you won't experience by God's grace if you walk in obedience to Christ. Stuff that maybe you had to deal with before you knew Christ. You know, like a guilty conscience that was assailing your mind because you're like, I did this wrong against that person and I haven't told them. 
I did this wrong against that person and I haven't told them. The bondage to sin, when you were in addiction to certain kinds of sin and you just had no joy or peace because you always wanted to satiate whatever urges came to your carnal frame. There's all kinds of things that you've been delivered from. You walk down the path of obedience to Christ and you don't have to. By the grace of God, if you're a young person, you can walk in the obedience to Christ at a young age and you don't have to carry immorality and impurity into the marriage covenant. Thanks be to God. You can avoid thorns if you walk down the path of righteousness. You don't have to worry about payback. Somebody else paying you back for the sins that you've committed. Revenge. You don't have to worry about your sin being exposed because you walk in the light. See, walking in the path of wisdom gives you a nice and large space. And it does lead on some level to a minimization of problems, at least certain kinds of problems like those. So, by the grace of God, many of us can look back or look forward to saying as we apply that truth, you enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. And then even as you are doing that, you know that that is the outworking of His grace and not your own goodness. Now, imagine a little bit of a shift in view here. Having seen that, David is speaking metaphorically of how God has empowered him. Now, as it were, you're going to get a view from the battlefield. So it's as though we're shifting to these metaphoric images. God strengthening his arms, girding him with strength, and him having the feet of a deer and so on. And now so we're going to get a view from the battlefield. We see this begin to break down, kind of itemized breakdown of the aforescribed divine enablement, beginning in verse 37. I'm going to read through verse 39. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. You have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. So here, David is taking another retrospective look at his past wars, possibly giving the verb tenses here, possibly anticipating even greater expansion of the kingdom, But nonetheless, he is thinking about God-wrought victories, possibly anticipating further ones as well. Let's walk through these verses, and then we'll see how we might apply them as Christians. David wrote, I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. So in other words, he had such divine enablement that he was able to overtake, catch his enemies, and he was able to overtake them. You're like, what does it mean by overtake them? Well, it essentially means to defeat them. Destroy them is the language that's used in 2 Samuel 22.38. David's pursuit of the Amalekites comes to mind. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 8. Remember when David asked the Lord, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? It's an example of the kind of thing he's speaking about here. Second half of verse 37. David showed proper resoluteness. Neither did I turn back until they were destroyed. So whatever weariness he felt, whatever fatigue he faced, he did not stop till he completed the task. And again, David's victory over, say, the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 30 comes to mind. If you were to look in 1 Samuel 30, we're told that David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 17. Only 400 men on camels escaped. Verse 38, when David said, I have wounded them so that they could not rise, they have fallen under my feet, it's not difficult to understand what he meant. It's speaking of his military victory with his foes dead and defeated on the field of battle. Now, lest we think David, now notice this, by the way, David here is using first-person language to speak of what he did and what he accomplished. But watch. You can learn from David, even in what he does here. Watch how quickly he goes back to making sure that God gets all the glory. Verse 39, he says, For you have armed me with strength for the battle. He's essentially saying all the military prowess, all the ability, all the courage, that was the result of the Lord's empowerment. See how quick he was. He's talking about what he did, but yet he's so quick to make sure God gets the glory. The idea continued in the second half of verse 39 where it says, You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. So the picture there is of David's enemies being overcome and bowing to him. 
You might see in uh, 2 Samuel, for instance, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, just an outline of the success of David's conquests. It says, All the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Okay. So having gone through that, let me just go through what I think are some points of application for us, just to understand this. First thing I wanted to say is that we ought to be reminded of God's call upon David in that historical context. Again, God who could judge the world with whatever He would want to, right? He could open the ground and have it swallow up individuals. He could send a flood. He could send, you know, whatever He would want to do. He could send an angel. In the Old Testament context, He often used the nation of Israel to be an instrument of judgment. And He would often use other nations as instrument of judgment against Israel, like, say, Assyria, like, say, Babylon. And I think it's important to note here that within this historical context, David, acting as God's anointed, was doing God's will within this historical context. I think that's important. That's not something to shy away from. You know, sometimes you might see press secretaries not wanting to answer questions because they want to like, hide from you know, the truth. Like, I'm just not going to answer that. You might ask me a question, but I'm just going to talk about something else. You know, and sometimes I think Christians can do that with certain things in the Scriptures. Like, ah, I don't really want to talk about that. Don't really want to go into that. No, when you look at texts like this and David saying what he's saying, it's military victory that was under God's superintendence and appointed by God. It was. Just even as God used the nation of Israel. And again, he could use floods, he could use storms. He, he appoints the times in which people live and how they live and how they die and so on. And I don't think this is something that we should shy away from. You know, sometimes I talked about, you know, what press secretaries can do and have done, but sometimes pastors can do that as well. God doesn't need us to be, you know, his PR people. I want to make sure I make him look good. Just tell the truth. Just say, this is what the scripture says. It's just true. God's holy and just and righteous. And if something doesn't line up with your worldview, then the problem isn't with his. The problem is with ours. His ways are higher than our ways. You know, we're not surprised that an ant doesn't understand us. Right? Like if an ant can't understand what you're doing. Why you're upset that day? The ant looks at you and has no idea what's going on in your heart and mind. And we understand that the ant isn't going to understand what's going on in my heart and mind. But sometimes when we think about God's ways, we think that we ought to understand everything and that you know, His ways must fit our ways. No, God's perfect, holy, and just, and all that He does, we want to just tell the truth. This is who He is. His love and His grace are so great, and His wrath is holy and appropriate. So I think that's important. You know, lest we squirm and cringe about things that God would not have us to squirm and cringe about. Just say, look, this is part of my holy, righteous judgment. So much more that can be said about that, and we'll have an opportunity to talk a little bit more about that. Second, by way of application for us, I would say, I think this gives us a little bit more insight into how we ought to be serious about mortifying the flesh. Right? You're not called to kill Canaanites or Amalekites or Jebusites. You're called to kill sin. You're called to mortify the flesh. Colossians 3, Romans 8, good examples of instruction to that end. And I think this reminds us that in that battle, we ought to play as though we're playing for keeps. Right? We're not supposed to take this lightly, this whole idea of killing the flesh and subduing our flesh to walk in the right and righteous way of Christ. But sometimes I think we could do that. I think sometimes we as Christians can forget that this is a serious battle. You know, when I was a kid and I played video games, it was so nice to say I could just hit the reset button. You know, if I lose, if I die in the video game, no, it's, it's cool. I'll just play it again. I'll hit continue. You know, I'll shut off the game. I'll play it again. I think sometimes we could treat our battle with sin lightly. I think sometimes it could be like uh, we become so comfortable with our sinful habits, it's as though we're kind of carrying around a, like a, a little cute Pomeranian in our pocket. You know, like, hey, I got this little sin problem. Yeah, yeah, no, it's always there with me. Kind of had it with me. Had it for so long. You know me with my bad temper. Kind of always had it. You want to see it? You'll see it sometime. You want to pet it? 
You know me with my work, I'll kind of speak personally, right? So, you know, some, some of the things in my own life, with some of the health issues of the last year, yep, kind of just living with that worry, right? Worrying about my health. That's just kind of what I do these days, worry with my health, you know, worrying about tomorrow, worrying about that ache and this ache and that ache and what might be coming. We can't treat it like that. Like, hey, here's my cute little Pomeranian of sin. No, no, no. You want to treat it with seriousness. You want to take the sword of the Spirit to it. You want to do war against it. As somebody who's forgiven and loved by God, but yet nonetheless taking sin serious. Let me just ask you, just by way of pastoral application for the moment. When is the last time you looked at a sin in your life and took it as serious as somebody who would be warring against another party? Like in that old covenant context. Can you even remember? Now maybe some of you are like, yeah, this morning. Yeah, okay, great, that's excellent. But doubtless there's probably somebody in this room who's like, yeah, I just don't remember that. Just having like... I remember early on in my Christian life, I would war against this sin and war against that sin. But now I've just got comfortable with certain sins that are in my life and they're just kind of there and I hate them and God knows I hate them. And I just want to encourage you as somebody who's loved and forgiven by the blood of Christ, declare war against that sin. Mortify it. God has not called you to take up physical weapons against carnal adversaries but he has called you to take spiritual weapons up to mortify your flesh. So if you were like, well, what's a good Old Testament example of how we should treat our indwelling sin? I think a good example, if you wanted to see one, would be in 1 Samuel 15.33. Look how Samuel treated King Agag. It wasn't like a little cute Pomeranian that he was carrying around with him. He hacked Agag to pieces, and he did it in the text before Yahweh. Right? Yahweh had given instruction to Saul that was holy and righteous and just to kill the Amalekites. God had been patient with the Amalekites. But God, who could use anything, He could have had their hearts stop beating in a moment. He was gracious with them, but He was going to use Saul and the Israelites as an instrument of judgment. Saul didn't do what God had called him to do, at least not to the degree that God had called him to do it. And when Samuel sees Agag, and Agag thinks the bitterness of death has passed, he had another thing coming to him. Samuel takes the sword and he went to war against Agag. That's a better example of what it ought to look like when we mortify our flesh. Let me just walk this. I want to be specific. If you look at this text, what did David do? Look at verse 37. He pursued his enemies and he overtook them. So I would encourage you to find what are those sins in your life that you have to pursue? I'm telling you. So I'm not just preaching at you. Right? I'm telling you, in these days, and many of you who have been around for prayer meetings, even from the pulpit, you've heard me talk about battling with, with a kind of fear of health issues that I've battled with in the last year that I haven't battled with before you know, having COVID and blood clots back in May 2021. So I'm speaking about this in such a way to say, I'm not just telling you to do this as though I've graduated and this is something that I don't have to do. No, no, at different points in your life, it's going to be different things. So you identify it, and then you pursue it. You go after it. Say, okay, that's a sin that's troubling me. That's a sin that kind of keeps showing and rearing its ugly head. I have to go after that. And then you show a kind of relentlessness. Look at David. Neither did I turn back, second half of verse 37, till they were destroyed. So you go after them, those sins. Notice that, what else he did. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. So he took the sword to them. So what do you do? You take the sword of the Spirit. What does that look like? George, how do I actually do that? You take the Word of God. What are you struggling with? Are you struggling with pride? Take the Word of God. Know what the Word of God says about pride. Commit it to your memory. Right? That He hates the look of the proud. That God opposes the proud. That Lucifer, the son of the morning, wanted to exalt himself and make himself like the Most High. You start looking at these scriptures and you commit them to memory. And they'll sit in your mind and they'll renew your mind. Think of what the scripture says about humility. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Think about He dwells with the one who's of a contrite spirit. That's the one that He'll esteem. One who trembles at His word. There's this humility. So you start thinking of the word of God and let the word of God do the work. And then you expect for God to help you. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You start expecting God's Word to work. You don't just say, God's Word never works. I've tried it for so long and it just doesn't work. No, no, you expect God's Word to work. No matter how many times you fall, the battle's not over. You're still breathing, aren't you? 
So you're expecting for God to give you victory. Why? Because Romans 6, for instance, verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. You're expecting at the end of the day, even if you fall, that you're going to win the battle, not by your own strength, but through the power of the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. And there's more application that you could take. So it's not just about warring against sin. It's about just walking in who you are in Christ. Colossians 3 is a great example of this. Colossians 3 is not only about putting off the old man. It's about putting on the new man. It's about walking in your identity and and being who you are in Christ Jesus. You are holy and dearly loved, and you're to put on tender mercies. So it's not just about putting off sin and mortifying the flesh, like in Colossians 3, 5 and so on. It's about putting on the new man and walking in the new man, setting your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, having the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then walking in the practical obedience that he's called you to. It's amazing how those positive steps can have beneficial effects against those negative temptations that you battle as well. Those are some ways that we have um, to do warfare spiritually. And may we all, by the grace of God, have the honor of looking back at our life, even as David was able to look back in his life, and that we might recall much mortification of the sinful flesh that took place during our lives. In verse 40, we read, You have also given me the necks of my enemies, so that I destroyed those who hated me. I think for the purposes of time, we will uh, close with this verse, but I want want us to just consider this verse here and then an application to our Savior as well. When David wrote, you have also given me the necks of my enemies, it could mean that his enemies had taken flight from him. The same Hebrew word is translated as necks um, in different places in the Old Testament. And the idea would be, you have, that's translated as necks here, is used to speak of uh, enemies turning their backs to say the children of Israel. So when you say, what does it mean that David said, you have also given me the necks of my enemies? It could speak of the back of the neck. That's how it's used essentially in Exodus 23 verse 27. Um, other places as well. It could speak of subjugation as though the necks of his enemies were under yokes. It's also possible that the uh, phrase could be understood as a symbol of victory. symbol of victory in the case of David, a symbol of defeat in the case of his conquered enemies. And a good example of that would be Joshua 10.24, where he was given the necks of his enemies in the sense of just being able to tread upon his enemies. The next line so that I destroyed those who hated me, is not a reflection of a personal vendetta that David had. He was the king of Israel, and he was the target of hate from those who hated not only him, but hated the God of Israel. So when David says, I destroyed those who hated me, it's not like some personal vendetta that was being outworked. They hated the God of Israel, even as they hated David, who was Yahweh's anointed in that historical context. Now, Lord willing, next week, we'll consider how Christ is prefigured in David. Because I think much of what you see here is prefiguring, as even as I made reference to in the opening, is prefiguring the kingdom that is to come. The kingdom that is advancing spiritually and the kingdom that will be manifestly seen at the return of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, David is prefiguring, I would argue, Christ. So we're going to see that, Lord willing, next week. But I do want to make one point of application here that is a point of differentiation and departure. God gave David the neck of his enemies. But when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, you might recall him speaking through the prophet Isaiah saying, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. See, there'll come a time when the Lord Jesus will come back and He will conquer as a conquering king. But in His first coming, the Lion of the tribe of Judah overcame by being the Lamb that was slain. And and the Father, if it was part of the plan, could have given Jesus the necks of all His enemies. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Romans. He could have done that in a historical context. But instead of that, that was not the plan of our triune God. The plan was that Jesus would give His back to those who struck Him. 
that Jesus would give his cheeks to those who would pluck out his beard and he would not hide his face from shame and spitting. So while the time is coming when Jesus will return and all who hate him, however that hatred is expressed, whether it's outright hatred, whether it's indifference, whether it's unbelief, all such ones will be judged by him. But in his first coming, he delivered his people by being delivered up for his people. He saved others by not saving himself. See, David saved his people by fighting on behalf of his people and by conquering others. Jesus saved others by not saving himself. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah who overcame by being the lamb that was slain. The father gave the son so that a people who were at enmity with him would be reconciled to him. It's interesting how verse 40 could be an opportunity to think of Christ. You also gave me, have given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. And we, being the enemies of God prior to knowing Christ, we are ones for whom God gave His Son so that we could be reconciled to Him, no longer enemies, bearing a title much better than friends, the bride of Christ, children of God. Much more to be seen um, in this psalm as we make our way to the end of it. But for now, let us close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank You for Your Word and I thank You for all the spiritual empowerment that You've given us. While David had uh, weapons of warfare that were carnal and literal, You empowered him to use them how he was to use them in that historical context. Father, may you find us using the weapons of our warfare that are spiritual in the ways that you have called for us to use them in our historical context, Lord. May you find us, Heavenly Father, being faithful on the battlefield as we war against sin and against the lies that might assail our minds, Lord, or the minds of those that we love and people to whom we have responsibility towards, Lord. May you find us wielding the sword of the Spirit well by your grace. May you find us lifting the shield of faith and walking in the armament that you have given to your people, Lord. May you find us, Heavenly Father, not um, cozying up and becoming comfortable with whatever sinful tendencies we may have these days. But may you find us, Lord, being um, driven by your grace, Lord, to mortify these things when they arise. To pursue them, Lord, that they might be subdued by Your Word and Your Spirit. And that we might bear more fruit and walk in the freedom wherewith You have set us free. And we thank You, Heavenly Father, for the way in which David's victories are but scale model anticipations of what You will do when You send Your Son and He returns, Lord. Thank You, Lord, that You are full of grace and truth. And we thank You, Lord, that You are also holy and just in all of Your ways and a righteous God. Father, help us to rejoice in all of the aspects of Your wonderful character, Lord. Help us to rejoice in all of Your attributes. And we thank You, Heavenly Father. We know that we deserve to be, um, to be judged in and of ourselves. But yet, in the great love wherewith You've loved us, You've reconciled to us by giving Your Son for us, He who gave His back to those who smited Him, to those who struck Him, his cheek to those who plucked out His beard. Thank You for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank You that You laid upon Him the iniquity of us all, so that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank You for that great Gospel promise. Continue to use this text, Lord, we pray in our lives to renew our minds and help us run the race and war the warfare that You have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.